0: Well, good morning. If you've got a Bible, if you would turn to Luke chapter 21. Uh, Luke 21, as we are coming in on the home stretch of our long teaching through Luke, through Luke we plan on finishing this book up uh, probably toward the end of spring, and we think we're going to go to Joshua this summer. So, so that's where we're headed. Um, we've been jumping around a little bit chronologically in recent weeks, just so that we could kind of preach the right sermon for Easter and for Palm Sunday. And so, so a couple weeks ago, we jumped backwards to Palm Sunday. This past week, we jumped forward to Good Friday and to the cross. Um, but today we're going back in between to Tuesday. So it was Sunday, uh, was Palm Sunday when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey. Tuesday was the day that Jesus has spent debating in the temple, and, and what we're going to see today happens on Tuesday, and then what will happen at the end of the week will be Friday will be the crucifixion, and Sunday the resurrection. But let's pray and then, then open up this passage. Uh, Father, we come before you today with nothing in our hands to offer you. We don't have impressive gifts for you today, we only have need. And and our greatest need today is for Christ, to to turn from our sins and from the other things that have captivated us this week, and to turn to him again. So we pray that that today in the scriptures, we would see Jesus for who he is. We pray that as we turn to Christ, we would receive again grace from Christ Help us as we open this Bible that you've given us to see it as a book that's not about us and how great we are, but help us to see it as a book that is about the excellencies and the beauty and the generosity of Jesus. Help us to see Jesus here as the all-sufficient one who sees our need and rewards us with grace, and we pray that that would transform us into generous people who, who love others with grace like we've been loved by you. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So it is Tuesday, and and this is what happens next. Luke 21, starting in verse 1, it says, Jesus looked up, and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. So Jesus is watching them give offerings. And according to history, they had some offering boxes in one of the courts of the temple that were shaped like 13 trumpets. And you would throw your coins into the bell of the trumpet and then it would bring it down into like a secure locked box. And so rich people are coming in and everybody knows that they're making their offerings. Uh, We'll see in a passage in a second that it wasn't uncommon for people to blow a trumpet to announce that the rich people were there to make their big heavy hitter gift. That was really going to make all the difference in the world for the operation of the temple and and so that's how they're giving. They're giving in front of everybody. They're giving to be seen by people. And Jesus had warned about this. He said this back in Matthew chapter 6 verse 1. He said, "Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward." But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your father, who sees in secret, will reward you. So Jesus had warned that when we give to be seen, when we give to be known as givers, we're no longer rewarded by God because the reward comes in the people who saw us. They saw the things we did. They praised us for what we did. We we got the reward that we were after. And so Jesus said, don't give like that. Give in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. It's a good test of faith. Do I really believe that there is a God who rewards what nobody else can see? But despite the fact that a few years ago Jesus had taught that, here he is in the temple, the week of his crucifixion, and he watches how they give, and they're still doing the exact same thing. The the rich are coming and, and parading themselves, making their big gifts, everybody's celebrating their big gifts. And so Jesus looks up and he sees this thing, and everybody sees it. Everybody knows that's what they're doing. But then Jesus sees something that nobody sees, and that's this widow. She comes in, and she's not giving to be seen because she doesn't have that much to give. So there's not a trumpet. There's no fanfare. What she gives is small and probably would have been laughed at by the big givers. It would have been totally ignored by the temple authorities. She comes, and she gives the tiniest of possible gifts in the offering. It's an embarrassingly small gift compared to the cash that's being tossed in by the heavy hitters who just made their big gifts in front of everybody. And widows, they couldn't earn their own income. And so a poor widow would have been the poorest of the poor. She, she didn't have a big nest egg. She, she had very, very little. She came in poor. And so when she gave, she gave these two little coins, two lepta. These were Hebrew coins, minted about 100 years earlier, and each one was worth one one-hundredth of a day's wages. So she gives this offering that's worth you know, two to four bucks while everybody else is putting in their big checks. This is nothing. Nothing compared to what everybody else is giving. And this temple economy was huge. If we measured it in today's dollars, all the money that went into the temple and then the industries that were generated around the temple, the land that was owned by the temple, the businesses that they made money from, this was a hundreds of millions of dollars industry. And this woman comes in and puts in a few bucks, and it's going to make no difference at all. But Jesus looks at her gift, and he says, she gave more than all of those rich people combined. Because they had abundance, and they contributed out of it with plenty left over afterwards. But she gave all that she had with nothing left over. In fact, in verse 4, when Jesus says that she gave all that she had to live on, in the Greek, it's a ton bion. It's all her life. So she gave it all, her whole living, her whole life. When she went home, she probably didn't have money to buy food. The rich came and they made good gifts, but they went home afterwards to nice houses. They ate good meals. They fed their families. She came in poor and she left destitute. And so notice a few things here. First, Jesus is watching. And this is a gift that nobody else would have noticed. Nobody cares about the person who's putting in a couple bucks if you're measuring things in dollars, but Jesus sees it. Jesus sees it, he notices it, and he knows what it cost her. He knows what's in her heart. He knows what's in the hearts of the temple authorities that were dismissive of her. He knows what's in the heart of the rich people who are giving just to be seen. Jesus looks and he sees, he sees the heart, and this continues today. One of the attributes of God is that he is a God of omniscience. He's all-knowing. There's everything that he, everything is plain to him. He can see everything. There's nothing that's hidden from him. In Psalm 11, verse four, it says, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of men. In fact, one of the earliest names that God's called by in scripture is El Roy, which means the God who sees. And he's called that by Hagar. And Hagar is a used and abused, destitute, single mother in the wilderness, but God cares for her. And when God cares for her, she says, he's a God who sees. He sees everything. So Jesus is sitting here and he sees the sacrifice. He sees the heart of worship. He sees what's done in secret that would never get praised by people. And this is good news. This is good news for people who do thankless work. It's good news for people who are involved in ministries where they're not spotlighted. They seem thankless. They seem like all work and no thanks. It's good news for people who make unnoticed sacrifices in in their lives that they're not unnoticed. Jesus sees it. Our Father sees it. He rewards what's done in secret. He rewards the stuff that's never rewarded by people, that's never seen by people. He sees the things that nobody else sees. We see the big giver. We see the strong, we see the person whose work is significant. We see the person whose contribution seems to make the biggest difference. But Jesus sees the widow. He sees the poor, he sees the humble, he sees the one whose efforts don't seem to matter and he says she's actually given more than everybody else combined. So as we serve and as we give, if we feel like what we have to offer is small and insignificant, we've got to realize that Jesus is the one who who's watching. And the work that that we do, the the service that we render, the offerings that we give, they have value not because of their size. They have value because they're done in faith. Jesus looks at what's humble. He looks at what's done in faith. He looks at this woman who gives her all. He looks at the depth of her sacrifice. He sees what nobody else sees. So he sees it. Number two, he measures it. Nobody else would have thought it was significant, but he said she gave her whole life. It's more than everybody else combined. So he measures the gift by the proportion of the sacrifice, not by the amount. And Jesus looks at what she does, and he he commends her self-sacrifice in worship. There was no trumpet that was blown for her gift, but the God who sees measured it, and he said, this thing is Gargantuan. And these widows, widows in in Luke's gospel, they're they're always the people with the least, but they're also people that again and again are the people who are noticed by Jesus and receive God's favor. At the beginning of Luke's gospel, Anna the prophetess is is prophesying and talking about the redemption that's coming to Israel. She's talking about Jesus coming. The announcement of Jesus coming comes first through a, a widow early on in Luke's gospel. You see widows who are broken and empty and have lost, uh, like the, the widow who lost her son, and Jesus comes and raises her son to life. His favor gravitates toward those who have the least. And this serves as a little bit, I think, of a rebuke for the church in our day. You know, in some of the common books that, that just about every pastor is reading these days, they say that the way that you run a church organization, the way that you should manage things, uh, part of your strategy should be to make sure that your biggest givers are the most cared for, that you, you know what everybody gives, you figure out who the biggest donors are, and you make sure you spend lots of time with those donors, you make sure that when you make big decisions, every big decision gets run by those donors, they get a bigger voice, they get more attention, they get more care, and, and if we're just talking about running a business, it's probably good business practice. Because you just want to maintain your big accounts. Don't waste your efforts on, on the small accounts. In fact, when, when COVID first hit and we were shutting down services, nobody knew what to expect. Uh, a bunch of national pastors were saying, get ready for offerings to drop in half. And so, so we were all kind of just wondering how we're supposed to handle this. How do we navigate through this? And pastors locally, we did a bunch of Zoom calls together. And then some of those calls, there were pastors who were saying, the first thing you need to do is call your big givers and make sure they're on board. Make sure that they're with you. Make sure that they're the ones who feel like they're cared for, that you're taking care of them through this so that you can make it through this whole thing. So we're kind of being told commonly to care the most for the people who contribute the most. But that's contrary to the ways of Jesus. And if you're newer here and you're wondering how these things work, to guard against any temptation toward favoritism, I don't have access to specific giving records. So I don't know who our biggest contributors are. We don't make efforts to treat anyone as more important or less important based on their giving. And I was also super encouraged at the beginning of COVID that when our elders huddled together and we said, all right, what are we going to do? We made that budget and said, okay, this is what we do for for when the bottom drops out. This is how we make it through the year. We tightened our belts. But while we were doing that, the same elders who were thinking we might be facing a 50% drop-off in our offerings were designating more money than ever to care for the poor, for people who lost their jobs, to people who would be in need, to people who would be on the front lines. They didn't panic and say, well, why don't we kick off a favor the rich strategy? They said, let's just give. Let's be faithful and see what God does. And honestly, he sustained us. The bottom didn't drop out. Offerings were fine. You were, you were incredibly generous in this last year. And so we didn't even need to, to worry about any of those things. But it was so encouraging that when we thought the bottom was dropping out, it, it wasn't a shift in strategies. If anything, it was let's do more for the poor. Let's do more for people who are sick, do more for people who are hurting. And it was encouraging for for me to hear. But we can't read what goes on here in the temple and think that Jesus would be really honored if we started to favor the rich. So Jesus watches, Jesus measures, and then Jesus commends her gift as worship. What she does here is a good and beautiful thing. And this is super significant because remember where the money's going. Jesus has been butting heads with these temple authorities for days. In fact, a good portion of his ministry, we we see him butting heads with the religious leaders who are paid by the offerings in the temple. We see him calling out some of the sins and the deficiencies in the temple. And in fact, to make things worse, within 24 hours of this widow dropping her offering in the trumpet, this is what happens in Matthew 26, verse 14. It says, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests, these are the guys who work at the temple, And he said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. So follow the money here. The widow throws in her last two coins. Jesus commends her for her worship and her gift. And within 24 hours, those coins and far more are in the pocket of Judas Iscariot. They're the price for blood for betraying Jesus. So this means that Jesus honors a heart that gives in worship, even when it turns out it was misused by those who received the offerings. So even if the offering wasn't used in the most efficient way, even if it wasn't used in the way that, that everyone would agree with, and even at times when it was misused, Jesus still commended the heart of worship. I think this is important. I know for me, I spent years as, as part of a church where I gave an absolute ton of time, essentially gave all of my, my hours there, um, gave you know, never less than 10% of my income. And then later I learned that that same church was absolutely riddled with corruption. And it would be easy for me to look at my gifts and my service as totally wasted. It'd be easy to feel like, oh, I made this investment, I bought the stock and the stock crashed, it was all for nothing. The good news here is that Jesus commends what's done in faith as worship, even when the investment doesn't pay off in earthly terms. Remember, we said a couple weeks ago that God is a God of a resurrection, that, that when, when things die, efforts that we make in improving things and helping people, when those things die, those things don't work out, we have a God who resurrects things. Those things will still live. Those things will still make a difference somehow in the resurrection, And because we have a God who does that, we don't have to worry that it's all wasted. We should be reasonably prudent about where we give and how we give, for sure. But we can also give as worship and give with cheerful abandon, knowing that the reward comes from worshiping the God who sees and knows and rewards sacrifice. That no good thing that's done in faith is wasted. So again... The, the gospel of Luke here uses one of the least, uses this widow to call us to something higher. Through this widow, Jesus is calling us to live lives of generous giving, not just as investments in the kingdom, though those are good, but also as, as worship, where we give, understanding that everything we have belongs to God. He calls us to trust that the giving we do has worth in God's plan, even if it doesn't seem to work out. And even if our earthly understanding of that investment doesn't It proved to us that it paid off somehow. He calls us to give joyfully. And even though we're not in control of all of the outcomes of where that goes, we're responding in love to the one who is in control of those outcomes. And through this widow, he calls us to give as a way of saying that all we are and all we have belongs to God. And so it's not the pious religious people with their big gifts and the trumpets being sounded that reflect the ways of God. It actually ends up being this widow who shows us what God is like the best. She reflects a little bit of the gospel here because when God gave to us, he gave his whole life. He gave his son. He was ridiculously generous with us, even though we often ignore him, even though we misuse the gifts. In the gospel, he gave us his life. In any time that the scriptures call us to be generous people, which they do all over the place, it's always in in the context of what, what God has done for us. In fact, listen to this. This is 2 Corinthians 8. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church. He's encouraging them to be generous people. He's encouraging them to give toward his ministry. And he says this. He says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. So this woman, in giving her life, was reflecting a sacrifice that Jesus would be making for her just three days after this moment. And people who understand the generosity and the grace of God become lavishly generous people. We saw this in Luke 19 with Zacchaeus, how his response to receiving the grace of the Lord was to give. In the Old Testament, when, when people received the grace of God and their, their crops produced a good harvest, they were to bring the first 10% and give them as worship. They worshiped with the first fruits of the grace that God had given them. So again and again, we're called to give lavishly in response to the lavish giving of God. But there's also more going on here. We don't want to pluck this passage out of its context And and at the end of the service today, we actually are going to be playing a video introducing the new building that we're going to be moving to this fall or winter. And and in that video, there's a call for us to consider giving to the cost of the build-out of that project, because it's some significant build-out that we have to do. And and for me, this is a project I believe in, I'm excited about, and I would ask that if you're a member or a regular here, that you would consider if you might contribute between now and the end of the year to help cover those build-out expenses on, on a project that could make a difference for decades to come. It's a good opportunity to worship and a good opportunity, I think, to invest in the kingdom of God in Rochester. Now, if you're newer here, you'll find that we, we rarely make pleas like this. We rarely ask for anything here. And when we do, we try not to manipulate. We try to run straight up the middle. We try to say, here's a project. We need money for it. Please give money for it. Like, we don't want it to manipulate you. We don't want to toy with your emotions. We want you to make good decisions. But honestly, if I stopped right here with the sermon, you might be able to accuse me of taking this passage out of context and saying that I was just using this passage to turn it into a manipulative fundraising sermon for the building campaign, you you might say, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to call everybody to give all they have, even if just like that widow, we go home and there's nothing left for dinner. We're going to do a give it all Sunday. You're going to put everything in there. There will be nothing left, but we're going to do this in faith. You could definitely accuse me of doing that if I wasn't going to do the rest of this sermon. Because there's more going on in this passage, and pretty soon you're going to see that if this is supposed to be a manipulative sermon to raise funds for a building, it's about to become the worst fundraising sermon of all time. Because look at the context here. Uh, A couple weeks ago, we looked at the passage right before this one, Luke 20, verse 45. It says, and in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers they will receive the greater condemnation so jesus had told them beware of the scribes beware of the re- religious leaders and one of their many sins was that they devoured widows' houses they manipulated widows to give so that the widows were destitute and they were enriched so jesus warns about that and then right away right after that passage with no break at all he looks up and he sees this widow give everything that she has, her very life in the offering. And as much as everything we just said about the widow's gift is true, Jesus does commend her for her worship. It's also true that she was not required by God's law to do this. I mean, God's law, you were required to give the first fruit of your increase. So so if you had a job and you had income, you gave the first part of it. You could certainly give on top of that if you wanted to. But what was required is that when you were profitable, when you were making money, when you had money coming in, you gave of the money that was coming in. But this widow doesn't have money coming in. She has a tiny little nest egg. Her departed husband had probably long since tithed on this, and this is all she's got left. And so here she comes Sweet widow with a heart of worship and a heart of generosity, she comes and she throws her last coins in, probably because she felt obligated to give. And then she goes home and, and eats what? Because she just tossed in her last two pennies. And Jesus said, beware of scribes who devour widows' houses. Watch out for those guys. And then from there, right after he describes this, this giving of the widow, he says this in Luke 21, verse 5, it says, while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So he says, watch out for people who devour widows. Then we see a widow give her last two lepta, and then Jesus looks at the temple and he says, this place is getting destroyed. In Mark's gospel, in chapter 12, when he tells these stories, he tells them in the exact same order. Beware the scribes who devour widows, look at the widow giving, and then this place is coming down. So there's actually a judgment that's being pronounced on this temple. And one of the reasons for it, there are a lot of reasons for it. The big one was that they rejected Jesus when he came. But another reason for it is that this institution that God had ordained to be built, in part, to care for the poor and the widows, was now devouring them, and it was leaving them with nothing to live on. And throughout the Old Testament, God had called his people to give special care to the widows because that's what God is like. Listen to what Deuteronomy says about God in Deuteronomy ten eighteen: He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Psalm 68, verse 5, father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. And in response to what God is like, he says this in Isaiah 117, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. So the temple offerings in part were to care for widows. But here's an example of a widow who comes into the temple and goes bankrupt because of her gift to it. I mean, there were a lot of good things they were supposed to do with these offerings. They were supposed to pay the priests, they were supposed to fund the worship, they were supposed to build the temple. Those were things they were supposed to do. But they were also supposed to care for the poor. But instead, they had set the whole thing up so that the poor felt an obligation to give even when they were being destroyed by it. They did the buildings. They paid the ministers, but they ripped off the poor. And Jesus sees that too. And Jesus promises right here that he's going to judge a wicked system that preys on the poor and the vulnerable and the widows, even though this was a system that was set up by God and that had potential for tremendous good in the world. Because God sees that injustice. And what's happening there, the devouring of the most vulnerable is seen by God. And he will, in time, make sure that that wickedness is rewarded too. And again, the wickedness is not in the widow. It's not in what she did. By all accounts, she's commendable for responding generously to the grace that she's received. She does trust the Lord. But the leaders who would make her feel like she must do this, or that threw guilt on her that made her do this, or that treated her like she was of no account if her gifts were small, or maybe they were somehow tied her sense of acceptance before God to the offerings that she put in, those leaders could expect a reckoning. We'll talk about it more next week, but in 70 AD, 40 years after the widow's gift, this temple was raised to the ground in judgment. God sees all of this. And he promises that when stuff like this happens, justice will be done. It'll be done by God himself. In fact, listen to Proverbs 15, verse 25. This is just something that the Lord does. This is the way that the Lord acts. Proverbs 15, 25. The Lord will root up the house of the proud, but he will establish the border of the widow. And that's what's going on here. This temple that was meant to be a light to all nations and a place where the poor could go for refuge and have the same access to God as others, it become a place that was devouring them. It had become the house of the proud. Peter Lightheart writes this, he says, though this proverb does apply to any proud man's house in posterity, it has, coming from the pen of Solomon, the temple builder, specific reference to the Lord's house in Jerusalem. When Israel turns the house into a den of brigands and it becomes a house of the arrogant, the Lord tears it down and sends the pieces into exile. In Luke 21, Jesus' condemnation of the temple immediately follows the story of the widow's might because God is tearing down the house of the proud, those who oppress widows and orphans, and he's establishing the widow's house. So this is an important warning for church leaders today. The people in church with incomes are called to give. And we're, we're called to give as worship. We're called to give lavishly and generously in, in all kinds of ways and in all kinds of places. That giving is a big part of our worship. But it's also true that churches are called to give. We're not to manipulate money out of widows and the poor, but we're to help them. We're not to make the poor feel guilty for having nothing to give, but to actually give to them. That giving is supposed to go both, both ways. And the widow or the poor person in church who has nothing to give shouldn't feel embarrassed by that. They shouldn't feel less a part of the church household because of that. They shouldn't feel a need to give the grocery money or the rent check to the offerings while the kids are going hungry. And as much as we can even know about things like that, as much as we can stop things like that from happening, we should. Now, there's nothing wrong with, with doing other things with that money. We need a building to meet in. You know, it gets cold here in the winter. We, we need a place. Um, we can't just meet outside all year long. So, so we have to have a place like that. We're, we're called to pay ministers and pastors in First Timothy 5. We support missionaries and we plant churches. And having nice buildings like the one we're moving into and being generous with those we support are good things. But we don't do it on the backs of the poor. We don't do it with manipulation. We don't devour. And if we ever do, if we ever become devourers, manipulators, we can expect God to do what God does with the house of the proud. So Jesus wasn't against offerings. He commended it. He wasn't against institutional religion. Jesus attended the synagogue on Saturdays, taught in the synagogue. The synagogue was supported by offerings. A lot of his ministry took place in the temple that was supported by offerings. He wasn't against buildings and clergy and an institution. The, the institution of the temple was set up by God. He affirmed the legitimacy of all those things, but you never build it on the backs of the poor. And this is one of the reasons that we're so against the, the prosperity gospel, because so often it's built on the backs of the poor. The prosperity gospel is the message that you will get wealth if you give wealth. That if if you give financially, then that will come back to you financially in this life. Or if you give financially, you'll get the health that you're praying for. If you give financially, you'll get the answer to the, the prayer that you want. The prosperity gospel promises an earthly reward for an earthly sacrifice. And it says that if you put in enough money like that widow, that money will come back to you as more money. And often those who are most, the most deceived by that teaching are the poor. And it seems like the only ones who are prospering from it are the guys who preach it. And you can go to the Preachers and Sneakers Instagram account and, and you can see the famous prosperity preaching pastors wearing $7,200 sneakers while proclaiming the good news to the poor that if they just keep throwing in their lepta, one day they can dress like this too. we were to paraphrase Luke 20, verse 45, we might say, beware the pastors who like to walk around in Yeezys and who love to be thought of as influencers on Instagram who devour widows' houses and for a pretense preach inspirational messages. And listen, churches are called to pay their full-time pastors in a way that's generous and honors their service, and we do that here. We're thankful for the, the generosity here. But also as pastors, we're called to live lives that show that Jesus is our treasure. We're called to be people who don't want the money if it has to come through manipulation of the poor. In all of life, we want to reflect the gospel. That means that when we have some means, we want to give lavishly and sacrificially just as God has given to us in Christ And when we see people in need, we don't want to try to extract from them. We want to offer care and help, and we don't want them to feel like they're less of a priority or less a part of the body of Christ because they only have what the widow has. In the gospel, God gives generously, so we want to reflect that by giving generously. And in the gospel, God cares for the humble, the poor in spirit, the weak, and he offers grace. So let's never be a place where poor people feel like they have less access to the grace of Christ in the gospel than others do. Let's reflect the gospel in how we give and let's reflect the gospel in how we treat those who can't. This is another reason I think it's so important for us to know the difference between the gospel and works-based religion because we become like the things that we believe. We become like the God that we worship. And in works-based religion, the teaching is basically that you have to do something, earn something, produce something, give that to God, and if you have something to give to God, then he'll give something to you. So if you're moral enough, if you're good enough, you can make yourself acceptable to God, he'll accept you and he'll reward you with heaven, or he'll reward you with a blessing, or he'll reward you with an answered prayer. You do good works, God will accept those good works and give you a reward for the good works that you do. That's what works-based religion says, but that is the antithesis of What's at the heart of the Christian message, which is the gospel. The gospel that we believe says that we actually are the widow. We have nothing to give. If we were to bring our two little moral lepta and toss them into the trumpet, that's going to do nothing before God. It's not going to commend us to him. It's not going to make us acceptable to God because it's not our strength and not our contribution that gets God's attention. It's humility. It's not our wealth that commends us to God. It's actually the opposite. It's our empty pockets. If we know who we really are, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, we know that nobody is going to blow a trumpet before us when we come to present ourselves before God like, like we've got this great wealth to offer him, so he must accept us. We go like the widow, with nothing to make ourselves acceptable. What we bring is actually worse than those two lepto. We, we bring our sin, we bring our failures, we bring our recognition that we can't save ourselves, that we can't make ourselves okay, we can't make ourselves acceptable to God. And when we do, he gives us the gift of his son. He gives us the gift of everlasting life. And Jesus promised that this temple would be torn down in part because it didn't care for the poor, but Jesus doesn't just tear it down. He builds up and he replaced this temple with, some, with something. He replaced it with himself. And Jesus didn't fail the way these temple leaders did. When one of us comes to Jesus, poor and needy, he doesn't devour, he forgives. He pardons. He lifts up. And if we come to him rich, We come to him saying, I've got something to give morally. It's your privilege to have me on the team here, Jesus. I got something for you here. Then we leave torn down. But if we come with nothing, then our house is established. Because Jesus went to the cross and there he was devoured for us so that we could receive the lavish riches of his grace forever. And if we'll repent, if we'll turn from our sin, if we'll turn from our unbelief, and we'll turn to believe in Jesus as our only hope for forgiveness in life, he promises forgiveness and abundance of pardon, true wealth forever in his presence. But if we come thinking we're okay, then we miss him altogether. It's the good news of the gospel, the good news that, that we are the widow. That we have nothing. But in Christ, we've been given everything. So let's pray. Well, Father, we confess that so often we become convinced that we matter when we have a lot to offer you that you'll hear us when we offer our morality, that you'll answer prayers when we offer our goodness, that you'll accept us when we can give you something impressive. And we confess that we're disbelieving the gospel when we think we need to bring something big for your acceptance. So forgive us for believing those lies. So we just want to confess what's true that, that what we're bringing you today is all that we ever bring you our sins. Not a big, impressive gift, but we bring you our weakness, our poverty, and our failure. We're reminded again that that you're the giver in this relationship and we're the recipients. We're the widow, not the heavy hitters. And we thank you again that to the broken and to the empty, you give your life. You give your son. You give forgiveness and mercy and everlasting life. And spirit, we pray that you would drive this truth home in us. Remind us of our emptiness and our poverty before you. Remind us of the lavish gift that you've given us and let those truths humble us and make us lavishly generous people. Make us people who give not to get from the crowds but who give as worship, who give to reflect the generosity of God and also to reflect the generosity of God who care for and respect and love the poor and those who can't give. Thank you that our worth isn't defined by the the things that you've given us. Thank you that all of us in our poverty have, have found the great riches in Christ. Help us to live like that's true and let that affect every area of our lives. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.